It's not about ivermectin. It's about the pharmaceutical industry capture of our agencies and how our policies are all directed at suppressing and avoiding use of repurposed drugs. Two years into this pandemic, why haven't there been more clinical trials of repurposed drugs to treat COVID-19? And we live in a system that favors high-profit medicines. Those are the only things in play, and they don't work. They are failing. Today, I sit down with Dr. Pierre Corey, a pulmonary and critical care specialist. He's the president of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. They've already covered up the miracle of Uttar Pradesh and now they're covering up the miracle of Itajai. This is a highly treatable disease. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Dr. Pierre Corey, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Corey, you know, you've been extremely active in uh, early treatment, frankly, treatment in general uh, for COVID. Um, and, well, you kind of stumbled into this in a way. And I, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you were doing before the pandemic? Yeah, so, so I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist, which means I specialize in lung diseases and also the care of the critically ill. So I, I work in uh, intensive care units. And before, as, as the pandemic started, I was, the, um, I was the chief of the critical care service and the medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin. And so I was sort of in the ivory tower and I was a clinical leader in the intensive care unit. And um, my career has really been one of, uh, uh, as an educator, I'm what's called a clinician educator. So I've always been heavily involved in patient care and teaching doctors. And I've tried to raise, you know, the next generation of doctors, particularly in my specialty. So I, I've trained fellows that have wanted to specialize in in, in, in my branch of medicine. I also ch- teach general medicine doctors. And so um, I was, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career is I, I'm considered a master educator. I've won lots of teaching awards and uh, that's the thing that I've, I, I found the most pleasure in. So that's really what I was and what I was doing when the pandemic broke out. Well, I, and I've read that you've actually ha- held three positions during the pandemic, none of which you hold currently. Correct. Yeah, I keep I keep charging through jobs. <laughs> so what happened? Well, I mean, I'll summarize by saying, you know, each job I left for different reasons and under different circumstances, but they, they have one main theme, which is if you speak out or speak up against the prevailing practice or policy, either of the healthcare system or of the hospital, and particularly if you do so publicly, Hospitals don't like that, and they seek to quiet you or censor you, Um, and they're kind of allergic to public-facing physicians with contrarian opinions. And I'll tell you, I resigned my first job because I was in moral distress over how they were caring for patients, meaning they were offering them no specific therapies, and I saw patients dying at rates I'd never seen before. And I said, I cannot remain a clinical leader under these circumstances, and I resigned. But because you had an idea about how you could care for them. I mean, within four patients. I mean, you want to know how absurd this is. Like, the thing that we knew almost immediately when we started taking care of these patients is, number one, they were clotting like we'd never seen before. That first wave of COVID, that alpha variant, I've never seen such degrees of clotting. The clotting is still there. It's not to the degree that I first saw in these patients. It was so overwhelmingly profound. Clearly, they needed blood thinners. Like, it was not, you didn't need a big randomized control trial. You just needed to know how to doctor. So I saw them dying of untreated clotting. The second thing is, they were inflamed. 
They were in states of multi-organ inflammation to the point, to such a degree, they clearly needed something to suppress inflammation. That for which is corticosteroids. And so for me, it was a no-brainer, give them steroids and give them blood thinners. I mean, that was just the, the basic first start. And I was attacked for advocating for treatments that were not proven. They didn't have trials to suggest it was proven and people saying that I might cause harm by using a treatment that based on my years of experience, my expertise, my insight, and my developing knowledge of the disease told me to use, I was being told don't use them until a trial proves that you can. And I refused to practice under those circumstances and I refused to lead a team. I had 17 ICU doctors under me and I will tell you most of all the hospitalists at that point were listening to me and I refused to sit in a position of leadership where my leaders were telling me to be quiet and to not advocate for these therapies. And so I resigned. You know, the second uh, position I was in, I was um, offered a new contract suddenly after my ivermectin testimony in the Senate where I advocated for the critical role and the need for a global deployment of ivermectin in the prevention and treatment of COVID based on what we had uncovered and the science that we had you know, uh, amassed. And that, as you might know, that testimony went viral and the hospital was not happy. They, they accused me of speaking for them and speaking on behalf of them. And they didn't fire me. They offered me a new contract, which had, which is in their right, they're a private corporation, but it had about five or six different clauses restricting my First Amendment rights. And so I said, no, thank you, and I moved on. So I resigned from one, voluntarily left the other one, mutually left the other one, and then the third one I was fired. And I was fired with a baseless accusation that was unsubstantiated, undocumented, that I had said something untoward about the vaccines to a patient, and for that I needed to be fired. It was a quick phone call, by the way. It was just one phone call. We don't need you coming around anymore. Well, and so, and then, and now, and now, what is your, I mean, you, you didn't stop working. I know that. Well, so now I, I mean, I've always been working for the FLCCC, so it's a nonprofit organization for which I'm, you know, the chief medical officer and president. And so I do work for them. I get a modest salary from them because that's actually a, a 30 hour a day job. <laughs> I mean, we're literally in a world crisis every day in the organization. And so that takes up a lot of my time. But, you know, I actually mostly take care of the other things that I do is I take care of patients and I've been doing it pro bono. Um, I've taken care of hundreds of patients, outpatients throughout the pandemic, over the phone, without cost. I just, anyone who reaches out to me, I help them. Um, and I plan to start up my own practice soon. I'm going to start a telehealth practice and um, really focusing on COVID and post-COVID complications. So, well, I guess, where are we <laughs> in terms of treatment? Because this, is, this has been developing. There's, you know, all these different... Uh, you know, essentially all these different treatments out there, there's like, you know, huge gradation in terms of how much they cost, how effective they are. I've been hearing that some of them are even kind of negatively effective. Um, where are we in terms of treatment? And of course, let's, let's talk about both, you know, inpatient, which is where you, yeah. you started, and then, of, and then this, this outpatient side. So where are, let's talk about the United States, because I think they're the most absurd example of the deplorable state of where we are with therapeutics. Like what is officially being practiced and recommended by our health agencies and deployed by our hospitals. The best way to understand it is what you already mentioned, which is the cost. 
All you need to do is look at the cost of the medicines that are being used right now in this country compared to the two dozen compounds that have shown efficacy in trials across the world. Every single agent that's officially met the approval or recommendation by our agencies is extremely high cost. And when I say there's well over two dozen compounds shown efficacy, almost all of the others cost less than $5. Not one is recommended in this country, not even vitamin D. So, you know, your question about where are we with therapeutics, it almost, you know, I almost, it's very hard to answer without getting angry because it is, where we are with therapeutics is exactly where the system in which we practice leads us. And it's a system which essentially favors and is structured around the regulatory and or approval of high profit patented novel pharmaceutical industry products. It is a system that systematically and has for decades fought against the use of repurposed or generic drugs. And I will tell you the most effective drugs that we and my organization have identified in this pandemic as being effective in this disease, they're almost all, with maybe the exception of monoclonal antibodies, they're almost all costing less than $5 and have been around for decades. Not one is being approved in this country. You know, I, I've lately, in my close study of not only COVID and trying to understand and how that system has failed in its response, how the U.S. Health has, I've become a close student of that system and now I see how it works. I, I now can explain their behaviors and it's essentially a system which marches in lockstep with the interests of the pharmaceutical industry and to protect their profits. And those behaviors actually, and this is not an overstatement, it's not hyperbole, have now reached a level of crimes against humanity. We already know the pharmaceutical industry has committed crimes over the last decades. I mean, just in the last two decades alone, they've, they're up to six billion in criminal fines, and that's not counting the, the crimes of the opioid epidemic. So we know that they're capable of criminal actions, and their criminal actions in suppressing and distorting the science around these low-cost repurposed drugs have starved people of effective therapeutics, not only in this country, but across the world. And it's led to millions of deaths. A lot, a lot to, to take in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, so I think was when we were speaking earlier, you mentioned to me that, you know, hydroxychloroquine was one of the early um, repurposed drugs which was which was proposed and, and has been, you know, has been used since in some places. But you, I think you told me you yourself were you pretty convinced it wouldn't work, but some of something changed your mind along the way. Yeah. So we were led to believe, and I say me, myself, my colleagues, um, I'll say two things about what happened with hydroxychloroquine. At that time, myself and my colleagues, when early formation of my organization, right, the FLCCC, we were really focused. Our first protocol was totally directed at the hospital patient. And hydroxychloroquine was very quickly, we understood that it didn't work in the hospital. And also didn't have a rationale for why it would work in a hospital. It's an, you know, it had antiviral properties. Why would you give it two weeks into the disease? So we never really had it on our hospital protocol. I think I used it in the first couple of patients, but I, I was very quickly not impressed with any benefits that I saw, and I was really concerned about that. So we didn't use it. And at the time, as an organization, we were not focused on the outpatient arena because we're all ICU doctors. But I will say that 2020 was what I consider the, so in this decades-long war on repurposed drugs, 
waged by the pharmaceutical industry. 2020 was the war on hydroxychloroquine. And they basically, through a numbers and series of actions, were able to convince the world's health systems, the medical community of the globe, that hydroxychloroquine was an ineffective and dangerous drug, while the opposite was true. And I will say that we believed some of it. You know, when we saw the negative trials, the only trials that you're showing up in high-impact journals were negative ones, meaning showing that it didn't work or that it was toxic. And so we were influenced, and it was, it's essentially pharmaceutical propaganda that they use medical journals to convince doctors away from repurposed drugs. And that's what happened with hydroxychloroquine. And I have colleagues who fought that war. So the colleagues like Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Harvey Rich, they knew it worked. They knew that the preponderance evidence showed that it worked. And it was only recently, and I will say that I became convinced based on the preponderance of the evidence about six months ago that it was an effective drug. And I disagreed with my colleagues. So Dr. Marek was much more, put a lot more weight on the official published trials in the major medical journals. And it was after reading Bobby Kennedy's book where we learned what they did. And what they did is they designed trials focused only on the hospitalized patient using essentially near lethal toxic doses of the drug where the treated patients did worse. They died more often than placebo. And using those trials, they convinced the world not to use hydroxychloroquine. And they did that only focusing on the hospital. And so I remember in 2020 when our federal government agencies came up with a policy and they told the entire nation's hospitals and doctors, we are restricting the use of hydroxychloroquine to the hospital. That was a criminal action. That was fraudulent. There was no reason why you would want to restrict it to the hospital. You want to use it early in disease as an antiviral. And not only after they committed those fraudulent trials and there was fraudulent papers and editorials in the journals that got retracted, but you know, even after you retract something, the damage is already done. So they put fraudulent studies published in major journals like The Lancet, then they retracted them, and they literally prevented outpatient doctors from using it. And after those trials came out, they, they actually canceled the studies of early treatment. They canceled ongoing trials of early treatment of hydroxychloroquine. So, so the war on repurposed drugs, 2020 was the war on hydroxychloroquine. 2021 has been the war of ivermectin. That's the war I've had a front row seat, and I've been fighting with every waking moment for the last year. And you know what the war of 2022 is? It's, it's a war on the drug called fluvoxamine, which is an antidepressant, which has potent anti-inflammatory properties, which greatly reduces the risk of death and hospitalization. And by the way, that study, a large, multi-center, double-blind, randomized controlled trial published in The Lancet in November, what have our federal agencies done about that drug and that trial? They have ignored it. It's called crickets. The NIH has specifically avoided updating the recommendation on fluvoxamine, despite it has, despite it meets the level of evidence which purportedly the system runs on, right, which is these large double-blind trials done by major academic medical centers. It has that. And the NIH refuses to update their guidance on the drug named fluvoxamine. And I believe, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory, it's not a conspiracy theory. I believe they're ignoring it and they asked the Infectious Disease Society of America to address it. And you know what the Infectious Disease Society of America did about fluvoxamine and their recommendation? You know how they updated it? They continue to say, do not use outside of a clinical trial. They just did the clinical trial. It was phenomenally effective. 
And they, so I'm just bringing up these examples because, you know, for me, although I'm known as an ivermectin expert, an advocate for ivermectin, it's not about ivermectin. It's about the pharmaceutical industry capture of our agencies and how our policies are all directed at suppressing and avoiding use of repurposed drugs. And it has to stop. So with, with hydroxy, in this case, you said six months ago your mind changed. Was it your colleagues coming to you with studies that showed that it worked or was yes. it? Yes. So I understood what was, you know, it, it came much more clear what was going on is that they were attacking drugs that were repurposed. And so I decided to relook at hydroxychloroquine. And enough doctors were saying that it was working. I heard doctors from around the world who still found efficacy. And although we were really advocating ivermectin, I thought ivermectin was more potent than hydroxychloroquine, I looked back. And when I saw the studies, I was astounded. I mean, the, the sheer numbers of studies that have been done, observational, randomized, it's over 200 studies. And they're all generally consistently positive, especially when you look at the early treatment aspect. So they convinced us that it didn't work, but that's in late phase disease. When you restrict the studies to just early treatment, they are profoundly and consistently positive. And that's when I knew it, it was an effective drug. And it's now on our protocols. And the interesting thing about hydroxychloroquine, which is really interesting, is even though our organization, our protocols, they're all combination therapies. We use multiple different agents, you know, working at several mechanisms. We have found that in Omicron, actually, we just updated our protocols this week. I now have hydroxychloroquine as the preferred agent against Omicron because the pathway in which the Omicron variant enters and re replicates inside the cell, it utilizes a pathway that's particularly specifically targeted by hydroxychloroquine. And in the last weeks, as I treat patients, I've had patients on ivermectin, I add hydroxychloroquine, and then when they take them, numbers of patients have said, you know, I suddenly felt a lot better after you added the hydroxychloroquine. So I'm seeing like a robust clinical impact when I use that drug. And so, you know, not only did we not have it on our protocols, it's on our protocols and it's actually a preferred agent now. And, and again, these are decades old, safe drugs used across the world. Well, no, and that, this is what, you know, I was thinking, but not too much, you know, back in the, you know, having worked in Africa and other places where these, both these drugs are over the shelf, used by uh, millions I, I, people, basically for common diseases and so forth. Um, but I, but I didn't think about it much further than that. I was just like, this is weird. Yeah. But just sort of accepted, you know, going back a year or something like that. Yeah, what the, what the, the general the, guidance was. The Sunday Sunday medicine, right? They take it every Sunday in Africa, you know, because it's a prophylactic against malaria. So. Yeah, for the for hydroxy, yeah, right? The hydroxy, right. yeah. yeah. Exactly. Or chloroquine, yeah. So you mentioned there's been all these studies now done on hydroxy validating its efficacy as a early treatment. Um, there's also been a number of studies I'm aware of done about ivermectin. And actually, you've been involved in one that just, I think, came out in from Brazil, like a sizable one with some pretty strong results. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean... That should convince any naysayer. Um, it should convince, and it won't, because the biases against ivermectin run deep and run strong. But this trial is, is so unique in history. In fact, I don't know of any other trial like it. So first of all, it's the largest study of ivermectin in the world in COVID. It has somewhere around 160,000 people in the trial, and it's a really unique study. And so what happened is you had a city in Brazil called Itajaya. Hopefully I didn't butcher that, uh, the, the pronunciation, but 
It's a city in Brazil of, of German descent, and they have a health system there, which is highly computerized. So they have excellent computer and data record keeping systems. And they also had a rather bold health ministry, which decided to do a program. They called it a program where they offered the entire city's inhabitants the opportunity to take ivermectin as a preventative against COVID because they'd seen, I guess, the study from uh, Australia showing that it was highly effective at killing uh, the COVID in vitro. And this is June of 2020, and they, they basically announced it throughout the city. If anyone wants to participate, come to a clinic. They had lots of big clinics and centers. And you could go, and they would tell you about the program. They'd tell you about ivermectin. They recorded all the information of all the inhabitants. And out of the 220,000 inhabitants, 100 and, I think it was 59,000 showed up and participated in the study. And of that 159,000, about 113,000 elected to take the medicine. They took it um, the first two days of the month and then the, the middle of the month. So for two days at two points in the month, so every two weeks. And they did that for a six-month period. And during that six months, the, the city prospectively recorded all of the data on all of the people who had enrolled in this program. And at the end of the six months, what they found was astounding. They found that in the 113,000 patients who re purportedly regularly took the ivermectin, they were half as likely to get COVID and they were 68% less likely to go to the hospital and 70% less likely to die. And so there was these profound benefits in protecting against infection, hospitalization, and death in, in a study of 160,000 plus people. And what's even more, more remarkable about what they found is that when you look at the people who elected to take the medication, they were older, they were fatter, and they were sicker. They had more diabetes and cardiovascular disease. They had all the comorbidities which portend the worst outcome. And despite being, you know, obviously sick, that would bias, which would limit the results of the study, they found profound benefits. And so there's no longer any question. And what's another thing that's even more remarkable about that study is at that time, the health system of Itajai offered no specific therapies to patients in the hospital. They did not receive ivermectin as a treatment in the hospital. They were only offered as a preventative. Once they went into the hospital, they were given what's called supportive care only. Oxygen, fluids, you know, something for fever, fever reducers. And so when you look at the results of that study, I argue that's the minimum of what ivermectin is capable, the absolute minimum of what's capable of, because if you had employed any treatment strategy beyond that, I believe you probably could have saved everyone, whether you used a combination protocol or just continued the ivermectin in the hospital. I mean, it was, it's, it's such an overwhelming result. And, and, and I have to talk about the absurdity and corruption and the censorship and propaganda. That study has passed peer review. It is now open access, published in a reputable journal, and there are crickets across the world's major newspapers and television stations. They are not covering it. In a different world, in a different time, I mean, you could hear bells ringing in every town across the world, right? I mean, a, 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 a cure has been found, right? You, you would think this would lead major headlines everywhere. And yet, nothing. And this, this is not new. This censorship of this highly effective science and evidence around repurposed drugs, the censoring of it, it's not new. It's just getting more and more absurd, and it has to stop. I mean, they've already covered up the miracle of Uttar Pradesh. 
And now they're co covering up the miracle of Itajai. And when I say the miracle of Uttar Pradesh, you're talking about a state in northern India of 241 million people that effectively eradicated COVID by September of 2021 through mass deployment of ivermectin in the prevention and treatment to all household members, everyone who tested positive, and all healthcare workers. And at a point in September of 2021, they had 67 of 75 districts without a single active case. And that was not covered by anyone in the world. Two Indian newspapers covered it alone. And guess what word was missing from the entire article describing the miracle of Uttar Pradesh? I have a guess. What's Ivermectin. Your, <laughs> Ivermectin was not mentioned in either article. I mean, it, that, that is the single greatest example of a, of a, of a censoring of life-saving critical medical information, and it's literally being censored around the globe. That, that's a huge population. I mean, that's, you know, bigger than most countries. Well, and the, the, when I say the miracle, because what they did is so remarkable. So you're talking about a state in Northern, a very poor state that mobilized 70,000-plus healthcare workers that fanned out across the state. They visited something like 97,000 villages armed with rapid testing and treatment kits and contact tracing and quarantining. And so they did really what I would call old gumshoe public health, right? Contact tracing, surveilling, testing, quarantining, and treating. And they did that across the state, and they obliterated the virus from its borders. And... And that's not talk about. I'll tell you, though, the WHO did talk about it. They put a page on their website talking, really lavishing praise on Uttar Pradesh and their health ministry and what they did. Guess what word was missing from that entire report of Uttar Pradesh? It's not mentioned anywhere. They had a brief mention that there was a treatment kit, but no mention of what was in that treatment kit. But, and so what did they ascribe the ostensible miracle. It's what to. all the newspapers did. They did not ascribe it to ivermectin. They described it to just excellent testing, contact tracing, and quarantining. And we know how much that works with this virus, right? It doesn't work. But they actually, they, they thought they did it so well, that's what they, they credit it to their public health initiative, not to the And treatment. so in these kits, obviously there were multiple, you know, compounds and things, but ivermectin, you, you, you ivermectin was is the, the main is the active by far, ingredient. Okay. By far. It's the only medication that could explain the results. Mm. So, and you, you mentioned, you know, hosp in, in this Brazil situation, the, the, the hospital reality that they basically just kind of, yeah, gave fluids and so forth. I've been thinking about, you know, the hospital situation here in the U.S. Because what is, what is the generally accepted protocol? I've heard it isn't a good one. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll get you to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to just keep talking about the failures of our system, but it, it's a system that's failed because it's a corrupt system. And I already have talked about what they've done to early treatment. And when you turn your attention, you look at the hospital, it's again explained by cost. Everything that's in play, with the exception of dexamethasone, is a high-cost, high-profit item. That's what's in play. And so let's talk about what that is. They have recommended, since the spring of 2020, remdesivir which costs $3,000 a dose. They give it IV infusion over five days, and they did it based on a study which purportedly showed a small reduction in the length of hospitalization. So for $3,000 a dose of a medicine with well-known side effects that failed miserably in, in, the, in, in Ebola, 
an Ebola virus. It not only it showed that it was toxic in Ebola, now it's the standard of care in the United States. And what, 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 what I find is the proximate cause of death across the world from COVID is a horrific undertreatment in the hospital with corticosteroids. The national policy, the NIH recommended guideline dose is six milligrams of dexamethasone. That is a tiny, pathetic, anemic dose of corticosteroids. It is less than what I give 80-year-old patients with emphysema when they start to wheeze. And you have patients crashing onto ventilators with whited out lungs, with very little gas exchange that is preserved, and they're giving them what I call a homeopathic dose of a corticosteroid. We have now dozen studies showing the higher doses you use, the more lives are saved. And yet they keep it at that artificially low dose. Everyone's sticking to the protocol. And, and people are dying from undertreatment with steroids. It's happening across the country and across the world. The science shows you need to use higher doses and they're sticking to this dose. And they try to pair it with these expensive, what I call ibs and abs, like tocilizumab and baricitinib, these cytokine blocking agencies where also high dollar cost by the pharmaceutical companies. It, you know, it's the same theme over and over again. We live in a system that favors high profit medicines. Those are the only things in play and they don't work. They are failing and people are dying because they're not being offered and you, you, they're not being given effective medications because they're too cheap. And you know, you, I can't help think about this. I've talked about this with a number of, of, of folks that I've had on the show, but you know, there's this traditionally, right, doctors, you know, it's the doctor's responsibility, right, to treat the patient based on what they understand to be the patient's needs. And there isn't this sort of, you know, here's the one way that everything needs to be done from on high. Like, I, that's, that's a new thing, isn't it? Unprecedented. I've never, Paul Marek and myself, we talk about it. What's happened in COVID is absurd. I mean, the, the, maybe the entire practice of medicine has been co-opted now. Like literally, we're being told what to treat patients with, what dose and what duration. And when you try to stray from that, you do what's called, you know, old school, old fashioned doctoring, which is you put your head together, you figure out what's working, what you try a few things, you see the mechanisms of action, you try to come up with medicines to counter those. Anytime you stray from this total, almost totalitarian protocols, right, that the hospitals are being paid to give, right, they're getting bonuses for using these protocols. You, your career ends or your job ends, you know? Like I had, to, I had to leave my hospital in order to take care of patients. I refused to take care of patients without being able to take care of them. Paul Marek's career ended because they literally restricted his use of a number of repurposed drugs. They, they made, they outlawed the use of his expert. And he, by the way, he is essentially probably one of the top world experts in the therapeutics around COVID. He's more well-read, more studied, more experienced on treating COVID than almost anyone. And his protocol gets outlawed from a hospital in view of the entire public. Why there's not an outrage or a revolt. I mean, yes, some newspapers covered it, but literally this is what's happening. They're literally restricting, they're not only restricting medicines, but they're restricting physicians. You know, and that, that, you know, that march that we're going to tomorrow, it's not just about vaccine mandates. It's about all the restrictions and loss of our freedoms, about the loss of autonomy of our physicians, the restriction to life-saving, effective, you know, low-cost medicines. I mean, it's unprecedented. I've never, ever been told in my entire career that I can't use a medicine. The only time it was, I think I've been restricted to use um, 
intravenous Tylenol because it's extremely expensive. So they put, they put uh, you know, you had to get special permission to use it. But other than that, I've never been restricted to use any medicine that I thought would help my patient. So, I mean, I... And let I, me, can I add one yeah, thing? Yeah, please. Across the country, ivermectin, one of the literally safest medicines known to man, ivermectin throughout the country is removed from the formulary of almost all the hospitals. Any hospitalized patient, none of the doctors can use ivermectin. It happened to me while I was working for a hospital. I worked for a hospital. And, you know, the CDC, when they started their propaganda campaign against ivermectin, the CDC sent out a threatening memo saying that people were, po were getting poisoned and dying of overdoses. That memo was quickly debunked. The data supporting that memo is actually vanished. It was overstated and it was hyperbole, but yet the message was heard. The message was heard by the nation's hospitals, physicians, and pharmacists. The hospitals started removing it from formularies and the pharmacists stopped filling. You know, when you see this awesome power, and it's not awesome, it's fearsome power of these agencies and their ability to control the practice of medicine in this country, it's frightening, it's terrifying what they're capable of. With that one single memo, do you know how many thousands of people died because of the loss of the ability to get ivermectin? You know, I suddenly started calling pharmacists, and I had pharmacists in my face telling me that they won't fill it, and that the FDA doesn't approve it. It's absurd. The CDC actually, in their memo, stated that the FDA has not approved ivermectin for COVID. That is a misleading statement, deliberately misleading statement. Number one, the FDA doesn't have to approve it coming forward. We don't need the FDA for anything. It's called off-label prescribing. It's generally championed, and it's a very common practice in the system. It's fully legal, and it's even encouraged when you don't have an effective medicine. Yet the CDC puts in their memo chiding the nation's doctors that the FDA hasn't approved it. The FDA admits on their website they haven't even looked at the data. No one's going to pay for them to approve it. There's no money behind ivermectin. And so, you know, it's so open and unsubtle what they're doing. And, and, and you know, I, 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 that's all I do is go around and talk about it because I'm trying to call attention to the absolute, you know, pervasive corruption in, in the conduct of this war on COVID. We're being hampered and handcuffed. And, and you know, it, it, if we had the freedom to treat this man, this would have been in the, in the rearview mirror a long time ago. It would have been gone in 2020. Once, once everyone knew that hydroxychloroquine worked and then ivermectin and any number of compounds worked and they were in, in mass deployment throughout the country, you wouldn't have all this fear-mongering and all, all, all the societal disruptions. It would have become what it is, which is a treatable disease. This is a highly treatable disease. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking back to this story that I, as I was preparing for the interview, I just, I, it was, I found a kind of popular story on the Epoch Times, a website, um, basically, you know, the headline is wife stands off with hospital to keep her husband alive and wins. Um, you know, the Ann and Scott Quiner, I think you say, are you familiar yeah. with the case? I'm, yes, I'm familiar with that case and many of the many dozens now cases of in particular the work of one lawyer um, who has successfully won most of the cases. And I have to tell you, as a physician, <clears throat> I don't want to be in the position of treating a patient and having a lawyer tell me to use a medication that I don't believe works. But there's a simple solution how to avoid that situation is you read. You know, physicians of the world pick up a book and read. Look at the studies. Look at, you know, you can convince yourself it's working. So I, I don't want to champion the idea that a lawyer 
or a family should use the courts to direct the care of their patient. But when there's a corrupt action preventing a patient from getting access to a life-saving medication, bring on the lawyers. And that's what they're doing. These lawyers are winning these cases, but the hospitals obstruct at every turn. You know, the judges are giving the orders, but then the hospitals say, not one physician in our hospital is willing to give it. So they can't give it. So then they'll force them to find a physician in the community who's willing to write it. And then they say none of the nurses will administer it. Then they have to hire a nurse to go in, and sometimes if they're on the run, they put it down in feeding tube. I mean, do you, do you understand the level of absurdity and atrocity that, that, that we've been reduced to? Literally, you have lawyers advocating for one of the cheapest and safest medicines known to man that costs literally pennies to manufacture, and we have to get special permission from physicians and, and, and nurses to administer it because it supposedly doesn't work. So says the FDA and the NIH and the CDC. It has not been shown to be effective. 73 controlled trials, almost every single one, with the exception of two, shows a benefit. Never in history has a medicine been tested so thoroughly. 26,000 patients in those trials, unmistakable, reproducible, consistent effects of benefit. And yet the NIH sits there and says it's not proven. How does Omicron change the game? You mentioned one way that I wasn't aware of at all is that you're incorporating now hydroxy yeah. in your protocols. But I've been hearing it changes the game in all sorts of ways. Oh, That's yeah. what I've been reading as well. Yeah, so let's talk about more positive things because I think the future is bright. Uh, in one respect, I hope that this endemic corruption gets uncovered and addressed on a structural basis in our system. But before we get to that point, Omicron really has changed the game. So, so the two things that you, there's several things you need to know about Omicron. Number one, it's generally much, much milder than the previous variants, in particular Delta. And to give you an example of how, in November and December, last couple of months, that last wave of Delta, I don't know what happened to it, but it was becoming really, really hard to treat. Ivermectin alone was not working. The combinations of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were not sufficient. I was actually, if you look at our protocols, we have actually first line, second line, and third line medications in the outpatient arena. I was routinely using all three lines of therapy, including early moves to prednisone. I was using prednisone more as an outpatient than I ever had because patients were getting sicker and quicker. And so I was sometimes had patients on six and seven medicines. When Omicron came around, I started to notice that patients were getting better a little bit faster, and they were getting better just on first-line medications. And so Omicron, not only is it causing less death and less hospitalization um, on a percentage basis, the problem with Omicron is it's so highly transmissible. We were talking about 800,000 positive tests a day in the U.S., which means it's probably a million and a half, two million people actually getting sick on a daily basis. And even though the chances of hospitalization is so small, the sheer volume of our society that is sick at one time is causing a surge and a strain on the hospital. So it's still a problem, but it's transmitting so fast and infecting such large swaths of the population that a lot of us are envisioning that by, probably by mid-February, late February, March, and you're starting to see that in some of the state's numbers. Some of them are peaking and starting to skyrocket down. That we do believe that we're gonna be left with a major portion of the population with natural immunity. And so 
you're not going to see hospitals fill. You're not going to see these crazy case counts. You're not going to talk to, you know, you know the, what I'm talking to is dozens of people a day who are sick or reaching out to me for help. I mean, it's not going to be this prevalent and, you know, overwhelming problem in society. Now, I don't know if the, the fear mongering and, and, and the, you know, this, uh, this relentless push to vaccinate and boost everyone will stop. That, may, that insanity may still go on, but they're going to be doing that on a disease that's A, not prevalent and B, not deadly anymore. You know, it, it, it's very interesting because it's a lot of the vaccinated people that never had COVID that now will have natural immunity that will make it through the disease, which is, you know, a lot more people than the previous variants. And that's, I mean, that, that's interesting. And I think, you know, unexpected based on the messaging, right? So it's acting almost like a natural vaccine, right? It's, it's spreading throughout the population. Um, generally well tolerated. Many people actually get it asymptomatically. Some just mild. It's a head cold for one or two days. There is a significant proportion who I'm, who I'm treating that have significant symptoms, but very few are getting severe symptoms. And so you're right. It's like the world's best vaccine. Well, I shouldn't say the best because some people really are suffering from it. Um, but if it leads us to the other side of this pandemic and, and to widespread natural immunity, I mean, I think, I think we're, we're waiting for that. Well, so, well, what else, what else are you seeing, you know, kind of on this, what you say on the positive front, you, you kind of opened up here? Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm not in the hospital anymore. So maybe the positive I'm seeing is because I'm not in those hospitals. Because I, from what I'm reading and, and understanding, they are, they are strained, right? Um, but I'm seeing a milder disease um, that... People are generally tolerating. It's easier to treat than, than the last phase of Delta. And, and I'm starting to see numbers across many states, which are now starting to go down. And so, you know, I, I, th I think that's positive. I don't think we're going to be talking about acute COVID to the, to the degree that we, we are now. Um, I still, you know, my, one of my one other thoughts on Omicron and just the sheer numbers who are getting it is what's going to be the incidence of long-haul syndrome, right? Is Omicron going to give rise to a huge portion of the population with long-haul, or will it not give them long-haul? Because it's generally much to, um, more well-tolerated and mild. Um, and so, but, you know, that's one of the things I think about the future. I, I do think acute COVID will wane, um, and a lot of our pr protections and restrictions and practices hopefully will lighten up. You know, lighten up on the masks. Uh, you know, if you heard uh, uh, Boris Johnson in the UK yesterday announced that they're lifting all mask mandates and boosters and vaccine passports. And so um, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> you know, to, to be in a constant state of a public health emergency for two years, I mean, you know, I think everybody wants to move on and go back to some semblance of a normal life. And I hope that'll happen. It just seems bizarre to me that there would be in places like Uttar Pradesh, highly effective treatment that isn't, you know, kind of noticed and having you, people trying to kind of replicate what what has been done there or now in Brazil or, you know, um, or noticing that the policies for, you know, large countries are changing dramatically. Um, and But at the same time, you have England and then you have Austria, right? right? where I think it's becoming mandatory to be vaccinated, period. And I don't even, I don't know how that works, but wow. You know, the one thing I can tell you about the policies is so few follow the science. The science to support them have never been there. So the science to mandate this vaccine 
has never supported it because it's never been as effective as it was as claimed and it's never been as safe as it was as claimed. In fact, that's all been propaganda. And so, especially now, it's so obvious. The vaccinated are getting Omicron at a higher rate than the unvaccinated. And yet we're still talking about boosting. They're, they're marching through boosters. I mean, people have been boosted. Israel's on its fourth booster and they're saying it doesn't even work. And, and, and so you, you're hearing data coming out of countries, and it's always been discordant with the narrative here. Um, you know, those policies will change and become more sane once that artificial and fraudulent narrative that they have been very successful at, right? You, 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 know, you know, what I will talk about in regards to vaccines is, is we talked about censorship, right? What I've seen with vaccines is the science supporting the vaccines has not only been censored, so any inconvenient data is censored and or retracted or not published. The journals are just not publishing any paper which critically analyzes the damage of the vaccines. But the, the efficacy is also censored, you know, or, or is propagandized. You know, all you see in every newspaper for the last year, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. And then when you look at the U.S. data, they don't even provide the underlying public health data in the United States. They stopped sharing public health data openly. And then, but you look at other countries, like in the U.K., for many months now, the majority of people in the hospital are vaccinated. Yet here, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And, and whether you think they work or they're dangerous, I'm trying to call attention to the censoring and propaganda where you're seeing discordant policies and data. So, you know, a, a vaccine that's ineffective in another country is somehow very effective here, right? Um, a drug that has been safely used across continents over decades suddenly becomes dangerous here. And I don't know when those, that propaganda and censoring will stop. Maybe it'll stop when COVID stops, but... I don't know when that'll end. And, and, and with these illegitimate, really illogical and non-scientific policies, and those policies are not trying to achieve public health aims. They're trying to achieve the interests of, I believe, corporate interests. That's the only thing that, that cohesively explains why those policies are in place. It's because it's not, when the science isn't there, you have to ask, then why else are they doing it? And the easiest one that covers most of the policies are financial interests. You've said that hospital treatment is problematic in, in your opinion, this sort of the one-size-fits-all one existing treatment. Someone starts getting symptoms that look like they might be COVID. What, what, what should they do? You, you're doing a lot of telehealth with people, as you yeah. said. What, what should someone do at that point? Well, my general, if they don't have a doctor who offers early treatment, and I, we're hoping that with our advocacy, and our dissemination of the science around multiple different early treatments, our protocols being shared, it's possible that the average person has access to a physician who's doing early treatment. But it's not likely. I mean, it's possible and not likely. The majority of the doctors in this country are not doing early treatment. So how do you find a doctor who offers early treatment? One of the only ways I can suggest is if you go to our website, as almost like a public service, we borrowed and built this directory, but people who've reached out to us, physicians and telehealth practices across the country, we try to list them as a resource. And many of them are telehealth where they operate in 50 states. And so they're all overwhelmed right now. I don't know, you know how timely you can get that kind of care, but that would be one resource and guide that I would offer. Is we're trying to do that as a public health uh, service, is we're trying to offer information on how you can find a doctor who offers early treatment.
What if they are overwhelmed, but if you can't find somebody? So if you look at our protocols, not only do we have prescription medicines on there, so we have ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and a number of other agents like fluvoxamine, but we also have over-the-counter products and vitamin supplements and nutritional therapeutics. And so these are things that there should be no restriction. The only thing that would restrict you is you know, a few dollars in your pocket, which is not you know, a given for the average person. Um, but we have things as simple as um, like povidone iodine solutions or mouthwashes that are actually what are called vericidal and they've been shown in studies to greatly reduce the risk of hospitalization. And so if you start using that, remember all the virus is really concentrated in like the nose and pharynx. So if you do these vericidal mouthwashes and or nasal drops, which are found at any of your local pharmacies and we have information on our website, that would be one way to gain agency and, and give the ability to protect your health and treat this disease. You know, then we have medicines like quercetin and melatonin and aspirin all over the counter, right? Um, we have nutritional therapeutics like nigella sativa world, used across the world. Phenomenal study done in Pakistan where they showed that nigella sativa led to a large mortality reduction in the hospital when they combined it with honey. Who knew? Honey, right? Honey actually has all these antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and immunomodulatory properties. And so when you use those two things in combination, that also leads to a good outcome. So, so even without a doctor, even without a pharmacist, you know, you can gain agency and you, you can hopefully successfully navigate to the other side of, of an infection and, and regain your health. And so now let's say the symptoms are starting to, to mount a bit. You know, you're, you're noticing it, you're, you think you need to, you know, you're not finding your doctor. So. I know that, I know there isn't maybe a blanket statement well, here, but this is, no, I, I can imagine no, people being exactly in this statement. situation. So can you know? I, I'm going to answer it a little different. I'm going to say, you know, when, when you ask me what should happen if someone gets more severely ill and or develops what's called the pulmonary phase, which generally requires the hospital, right? So if your oxygen levels start to drop, Generally, the easiest access is to oxygen is in the hospital. Now, many of us who've done early treatment, we are starting to order and deploy oxygen to the homes of patients. None of us like doing that. We don't like taking care of patients that are beyond the mild illness stage in the home, but we're being forced to, because I will tell you, some patients flat out refuse to go to the hospital. They know what's happening. They know that they're going to be subjected to remdesivir in an artificially and ineffective low dose of corticosteroid, whereas if they stay in the home and they have a doctor that can care for them who knows what they're doing and has learned how to treat early COVID and can be aggressive with steroids, they are likely going to fare better in the hospital. And i got to tell you, it's a terrible public health message that I would suggest that someone stay home when they're, when they're beyond a mild to moderate illness and or they're short of breath. So I'm not saying that they should stay home, but unfortunately, if you, your symptoms get to the point and your breathing is so compromised, and if you don't have access to early treatments or a doctor who knows how to treat this early, you're going to be forced to go to the hospital. You know, I mean, mild degrees of what are called hypoxemia are actually well tolerated. I think everybody forgets that. And I'm not advocating that someone stays home in the state of what's called hypoxia, but it's it's not, for many people, it's not the emergency everybody thinks it is. And I would say it's not an emergency if you're undergoing good treatment and you can monitor it. So we generally recommend to everyone to get a pulse oximeter to monitor that at home. Um, if it, 
decreases to a degree and or you develop significant symptoms of breathing, you're going to need to be, you know, evaluated in a hospital setting. Uh, my goal is to prevent that from happening. That's my primary goal with every patient I come into contact with is at all costs, prevent the pulmonary phase, prevent the need for the hospital. But, and, and just if I have, if I recall correctly, these general overarching protocols that happen in the hospital, basically they start at the point where the oxygen is going yes. down, right? And so yes. everything you're talking about is already, you know, sort of outside, everything up to now that you've right. been talking about is already outside of that scope of treatment. Right, so we're, we're actually, you know, we're, yeah, I mean, patients who a year ago would be in the hospital, we're treating some of them as an outpatient with more hospital-level drugs, again, when they start to develop pulmonary symptoms. But, you know, if, if you go to the hospital, I mean, you know, our original sort of protocol as an organization was called the Math Plus Protocol, and it's directed at the hospital patient. And it's, it's a, a pretty considerable number of a combination of medicines that work at multiple different mechanisms. Unfortunately, the Math Plus Protocol is not the standard of care across the country. Um, we've been told that it is in the Ukraine. <laughs> so there's a Ukrainian, very prominent Ukrainian physician who invited Paul Marek, my colleague, uh, to give a lecture there. And we were told, and we actually saw one of their protocols, but it's widely used in the hospitals. And we even heard reports of a hospital in Germany that was very happy with our protocol. I think they've since dropped it or dropped the ivermectin. I think, you know, because we've been under so much attack, I think they didn't like the publicity or whatnot. But, um, you know, unfortunately, that's not the protocol that's generally being used. And, and I, I, f I don't know if I feel bad about this. I, I just find it's an unfortunate situation. But there are so many, I think, people now who've, I think trusted our judgment, trusted our protocols, understand why our protocols are the way they are, that we, we really are a data-driven, putting patients first organization, and they want us to doctor them. And when they go to the hospitals, they ask for the things that we recommend. And they're put in this, it's an unfortunate position of a physician and a patient disagreeing. They need to collaborate, they need to work together. And I will tell you, our advocacy is causing like a discord and a tension between patient and physician. And I, and I find that I really wish it could be avoidable. And I think it is avoidable. But unfortunately, a lot of physicians are prevented from employing that protocol. They can't even get ivermectin. They, they're generally recommended from using high doses. Maybe they're not comfortable with it. And so I don't, I don't know how to change that. But the hospital situation is a really terrible one. And I'm going to go back to my point again. I, I've, I've written a couple of pieces now um, on, my, on my personal substack where I go over the story of corticosteroids and that my conclusion and one of my main messages is that people around the world are dying from under-treatment with corticosteroids. It's an artificially low dose and it's ineffective and it's causing incalculable numbers of deaths in hospitals. And I really wish we could deploy corticosteroids at a dose and a duration and, and in a manner which was more effective. I, you could save lives if you were uh, more aggressive with the steroids. We know this is a steroid-responsive disease, and we've known that for two years now. Okay, so as we finish up, you know, I, I can tell. So this is part of your, I was, I was going to ask for the sort of general prescription for the system that you would suggest. And, of course, part of that is to be much more open to using higher dosages of steroids uh, in, in the hospital treatment. But what else would you want to see happen right now? You know, one of, my one of our first and early thoughts was we just didn't feel like the clinicians had a voice 
and what we were learning on the ground and the frontline doctors and what they were seeing, you know, from uses of the word, you know, drugs like hydroxychloroquine and or whatever, we don't seem to have a credible structure which allows us to have influence over policy. You know, why can't they convene panels of expert clinicians who have hundreds and hundreds and some of us have thousands of patient experiences under our belt in treating this, and we can share that now. So I would love for a much more transparent and open uh, scientific dialogue that's not curtailed and or censored or suppressed or, or or attacked with disinformation saying we're misinformationists. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to paint like an imaginary world because that's not the world we live in, but it's the world I want to live in, right? Um, and so a, a much more free exchange and open and invited exchange of information would be one. And then the other thing that absolutely has this change is I really do think that the health agencies essentially have to be destroyed structurally and reconstituted in some manner in which you can remove the deep and widespread influence of the pharmaceutical industry. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to restructure those institutions in that way. Um, but I think there are good practices that would do a great job. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is always going to be there. They're so good at what they do. Um, and they know how to influence people and policies. But, I mean, I, I, th I think we got to have, we got to give more power to the people to protect themselves against them. Because our health has suffered. Well, Dr. Pierre Corey, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. We live in an age of weaponized information and censorship. To be the first to know about new American Thought Leaders episodes and related content, you can sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. You can just hit the check mark on American Thought Leaders.